Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July the 2nd, 2019. This is episode 2463 of the Survival Podcast. And today's show is called Six Laws to Live Your Life By. Um, these six laws are from a group of 30 laws that I refer to as Spirko's Laws of Life. Um, when you hear some of them, maybe today, maybe at other times in the future, you may think to yourself, that's not Jack's law. Jack, Jack's using somebody else's stuff and calling it his. I'll explain that uh, when we dig into today's topic. Uh, it, it really isn't like that. Some of the laws that are in Spirko's Laws are indeed laws that I believe I am the author of. Maybe the concept was there in some way, but I was really the first person to coalesce it. And uh, others come from different uh, different avenues to become a Spirko's Law of Life. I'll explain that in just a moment. But what we're really talking about today is things that are intrinsically true from a standpoint of you probably should do these things. And what I have found is while I will get some objections to all of the laws, and specifically there's probably 10 of the 30 that people will say, but, right? And they have a but or, no, nah, that's not true because if I have the opportunity to provide four or five uh, sentences at most that explain what the law means beyond the way it's being interpreted, almost everybody's like, well, yeah. And that leads to something that we talk about all the time. We almost never talk about it the way it applies to this. What is it? You'll have to wait till I get into today's topic. But we're going to talk about six laws today. I'll just give you the six laws as bullet points, and then we'll go through them once we get started. We have keep your friends to people you want to be at least a little more like in some way. We have your past is not a liability. We have setting goals makes the inevitable educational. We have, you can't walk through walls in your dreams because you put them there. We have, never take the advice of anyone on any specific thing that they have not proven to be competent at. And we have, everyone is a genius at a few things. Find those few things and pour everything you have into them. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is ButcherBox. Um, I, I can't tell you how happy I am to have ButcherBox as a advertiser. Really. I mean, I take my advertising monthly payment from ButcherBox and product. Uh, I'm big on barter anyway, but you know, I have to really love a product and I'm like, you know what? You could pay for uh, monthly advertising, which is a key income source for me with product, but I let them do it. Why? Because they send me fantastic meat and because I can log in every month and say, I want to change my box up. I want to do some different add-ons. Uh, I want to see the special extra add-ons I can add, uh, special member benefits and stuff. I get two pounds of ground beef uh, in my order for the rest of my life. I get 10 bucks worth of extra free meat a month for the rest of my life by using my own discount code. I mean, guys, ButcherBox is high-quality meat, and they're doing things that we have been asking the commercial uh, farm industry to do for a long time, Do they do it perfect? No, but they do it so much better. For instance, pastured poultry. You know, the pastured poultry from ButcherBox is not chickens that are being grown by little tiny farmers 
where they're you know producing 5,000 birds a year, pushing tractors around the field. What they're actually doing is they're taking old chicken farms, they're converting the buildings and putting basically a wagon wheel approach to where the chickens can rotate around the building so they can keep the high production level but let the bird have a quality of life and let it get out and give the ground time to recover and all that stuff. They're doing something similar with their pastured pork. Is it perfect? No. But it's so much better. I believe when you have a quality product and you have someone making things better, they're a company you should support. That's what ButcherBox is. And then the big thing is I am picky about my meat. My wife will not even try to pick meat out of the market because she doesn't want to be like, I don't know. She's like, no, just you go get it. I'm always happy with what comes in my ButcherBox every month, and you will too. Check them out at ButcherBox.com. Next up today, Backwoods Home. In spite of everything I just said about ButcherBox, the easiest sponsor for me to recommend out of every sponsor that we have and have ever had is Backwoods Home. And the reason is I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home Magazine in 1993, and I did not even conceive of the Survival Podcast in the 2008. Translation. I was a customer of Backwoods Home Magazine for about 13 years before this thing was even a thing in my mind, let alone finding a sponsor for it. You, you, you have to believe in something to be a paying customer of it for 15 years, 13 years, whatever it is. And I'm still a customer today. Um, it's over 20 years now. Check them out. You'll see why. It's an amazing publication. My new uh, edition just came today. Uh, for this quarter, and uh, Dorothy was telling me some uh, land for sale in the back of it. I haven't had a chance to look at it yet, but I'm sure it'll be just as great as the you know hundreds of them that I've read over the years. Check them out today at BackwoodsHome.com. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into the laws of life that we're going to talk about today. Again, I call these Spirico's laws of life. Um, but here's an example of one we're not going to talk about today. Don't do stupid things in stupid places with stupid people. That's one of my laws of life. Now, some of you, if you haven't heard that before, might be like, okay, sure, okay. Or I've heard Jack say that before, so it makes sense. Anybody that's uh, been around a long time remembers that we used to work quite a bit with Frank Sharp Jr. of Fortress Defense Consultants. He's still a good friend of the show. We just don't really spend a lot of time with him on the show anymore or what have you. Um, but I did an interview with him, and he said that. So you're like, that's Frank's law. Well... Actually, when I credited him with it long ago, he said, that's eh, not me, it's this other guy, I don't even remember his name. And if you think about it, that's probably something that's been said by a lot of people, and fi even finding the original source may not be possible. Okay, So that's, that's an example of one that is maybe attributable, but not really. Um, one of the laws we're going to talk about today is everybody is a genius at a few things. Find those things and pour everything you have into them. Uh, this is really Einstein's uh, concept, even though he never said it that way. So I've expanded that. But this is when Einstein said if you, if you judged a fish on its ability to climb a tree, it would live its entire life believing itself to be stupid. So this is from Einstein. So it's, it's clearly not mine. You can't walk through walls in your dreams because you put them there. To, be, to me, that's 100% mine. I believe the, the overall writing concept's been talked about before, but... I've never heard anybody say that. I've never heard anybody even discuss the concept of a wall in a lucid dream like we're going to today. And I've certainly no, never heard anyone take the concept of not being able to walk through a wall in your dreams and expand it into the fact that we build walls for ourselves in lives that prevent our success. Uh, so that's, that's truly 100%, in my view anyway, from me. Okay, But they're all Spirico's laws. Well, how does that work? Well... 
you know, if you remember, it was an old movie in the 80s, Cocktail with Tom Cruise in it, and there was an older bartender, I can't remember the actor that played him, but his name was Coughlin, and he had Coughlin's Laws, right? And he would just randomly spit these things out as though they were his. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying when I say, this is one of Spirico's 30 Laws of Life, is that I, Jack Spirico, in my life, came to this realization, whether because somebody told it to me, Uh, whether because it was generally known and I found it and adapted it, or whether I did it myself, that at some point in my life I decided this is a thing that is intrinsically true, and I am going to make sure that when I am taking actions in life that these things keep me on track. So there are laws that I have adopted, and I believe that a, a lot of the positive results in my life can be attributed to them. And I've been working on a book, and I've been wanting to talk about these laws of life on the air uh, as an individual show for quite a while. I have little tiny mentions of them here and there. And some of them are things you've heard me say over and over and over again since the very beginning of the show because they're my laws of life. This is I, I teach what I know, and I teach what's given me the results that I'm looking for. But the reason I have not spoken about it very much is I, I'm a good writer that hates to write. Okay, I do a podcast instead of a blog because I like to talk instead of write. And I'm a good writer because I write like I talk. I'm not really sure exactly what I'm going to write. I don't sit down and make an outline for a chapter of a book. I have in my head kind of what I want to say, and I just start going, and I dig, and I find, and I uncover things. And that makes writing difficult because I have to be in the right frame of mind to do it. And I just don't like it. So I have toyed around with concepts for several books over the years here and failed to actually produce a book. So I was like, self, how do you how do you talk about this thing before it's done, which is a good idea to get some pre-marketing out there and not do this to yourself again. And myself answered myself and it said, if you have it over half done, it will be like if you're driving a car and it's not Really, you know, you're not sure how it's acting and you're worried about whether you're going to make it to where you're going. Once you cross the halfway point, you're too invested in the trip and it doesn't make any sense to turn around and go back. So I've completed chapter 15 of a 30 chapter book. It's maybe not quite to the letter 50% done because there has to be a conclusion uh, in an intro. And I'm waiting until the book's done to write the conclusion in the intro. Um, but I'm more than halfway done. I'm too invested at this point. I am not going to not complete this book, and I've been working on it like a maniac. In fact, let's just take a look real quick here. Um, I have completed uh, but 127 pages of this book, 53,000 words. I've got a lot of investment into this now, so it's going to happen, and uh, it's something that... Uh, that my recent vacation and the discussion with Doc Bones kind of pushed me like, you got to do this. So the book is going to be coming. Before I go into the six laws we're going to cover today, I want to talk about something that kind of came out in this book during one of the chapters. And it wasn't really specific to the individual chapter. It was really less specific to that one law than it was to the other 29. And that's why I chose that chapter to bring up. And it's the concept of cognitive dissonance. And in our space, guys, where we talk about liberty and freedom, uh, we use this phrase a lot, cognitive dissonance. And this is where somebody is entrenched in a political belief, 
and you provide them absolute fact about something, and then they lose their shit at you and, and, and call you a name or something like that. And generally, if they're on the left and you point something out that really isn't something that says the right's right, you're just saying that like basically both of them are wrong, then they refer to you as a, a fascist right-wing nut job or something like that. And if they happen to be on the right and you do the same thing, even if it was the same issue and you said the same words, then you're a leftist libtard idiot, right? So... That happens all the time, and that's the part of cognitive dissonance that we talk about. And that cognitive dissonance component, because it's really, cognitive dissonance is really like two halves of the same coin, I guess. That is where the mind experiences discomfort because it is presented with new facts that are in opposition to your current belief system. But in psychology, cognitive dissonance has that, and there's an or. And what comes first is the discomfort that you feel when you live life inconsistently with your, with your beliefs. So if you were a devout Christian that really believed that marriage was sacred and you had a mistress, it would mess your life up for a variety of reasons, but one would be cognitive dissonance. This assumes that you're not fake, that you actually believe what you're doing is wrong, but you're choosing to do it anyway because it feels good at the time. And the more things that you do with in your life that way, the more screwed up you're going to be. Because what we're really talking about with cognitive dissonance in that concept is stress. Knowing better and doing something anyway creates stress. Let's do a little time travel experiment. Let's go back to like junior high or early high school. And you have a report or a term paper to do. And if this, if you never did this, you're one of those people that were always doing what you're supposed to do when you were supposed to do it and always on time, then figure out some other place where this fits for you. But just use this as the analogy to understand what I'm talking about. You would maybe be told you need to have this report done, you know, by the end of the month. Ten days in, you haven't even put up an outline yet. You're not even sure what you're going to do it on. You start to have a little bit of Like this feeling in your gut. You know, self, you really should get on that. Ah, there's a party Friday. I'm going to the party. I'll get on. I got plenty of time. And the closer you got and the, the less time you had to do something that was going to take quite a while, the more that thing would pull on you. And then maybe as it got even closer... Um, you might even have got kind of bitchy with people. Like you might have snapped at somebody that really didn't do anything wrong. Or maybe you would have woke up in the middle of the night thinking about it, even when you thought you'd put it out of your mind. Because your, your belief was, this thing that I've been asked to do needs to be done and I should do it, and your action was, I'm going to be lazy and not do it. That's cognitive dissonance. And that creates stress. Now imagine if... There are hundreds of permeations of this going on in an individual's life. Hundreds of ways in which they're living inconsistent, not with what I think they should be doing, but what they think they should be doing for themselves. You see what I'm saying? You might think, man, that's messed up. That's messed up. And the reason I use like the devout Christian um, having an affair and cheating on his wife is because it's an extreme example. So that, le that lets you understand it, but it also kind of makes you think it's got to be bigger than it is. Well, the laws of life are intrinsic truths. That's why even the ones that I think I am the source of phrasing it that way 
or pointing it out. I'm still not the source. Again, they're just things I've attached to my life because I know they'll make my life better. They are intrinsically true whether I say them or not or whether anybody says them or not. Uh, an example of one that we're not talking about today specifically is um, that preparedness is just basically being a responsible adult. So if you have children, in your heart you know that if you lose a job and you can't feed them, that a smart thing to do would be to have some extra food around until you can get some more money. But yet you don't do it. I'm not saying you don't do it individually if you listen to the show, but most people don't do it. That would be um, one example. Uh, one we're going to talk about today. Never take advice from anything on anything from anybody who hasn't proven themselves to be competent at it. And we'll explain how people that are maybe not experts can still give good advice. But in your heart, you know that you should not take the advice of someone who doesn't know what the hell they're talking about. But when you want something to be true, like should I buy Bitcoin, and this person says yes, and they don't know anything about cryptocurrency, they got into it yesterday, you might go ahead and believe them because it's what you want to hear. It's a perception bias thing. But again, you're inconsistent with your beliefs. You know better. And if you look at all my laws of life together, certainly all the ones we're going to talk about today, you'll realize that most people, somewhere inside themselves, they would, if they examined that law, say that is consistent with my beliefs. But yet you can point out dozens of ways that that individual person is failing to live consistently with those beliefs. Sometimes intentionally. Like they really do know. And other times it's like they know, but they don't know. But they still, there's a that internal, that id, that part of their, the third part of their psyche is in connection with this. So what we have, and if you think about how screwed up the society is, what we have is a country with over 300 million people, the majority of which are not just living in a way that is inconsistent with the values that maybe somebody else would assign to them. They're living inconsistently with their own values, their own values, their own ethics. One of my, my first law of life is always be on time. Because if you don't, you're saying your time's more valuable than somebody else's is. And yet we have people that are chronically late, but they know that you sh they should be on time. And that constant being late and excuse-making for it puts them under stress. Now, here's the interesting thing about stress. If you apply just mental stress to an organism long enough, you can cause it to become diseased. You can even cause it to die from something akin to a heart attack. And I mean, science has literally done this with, like, mice. Uh, they come up with a way to stress the mouse, something the mouse really doesn't like, but it's not something that totally prevents the mouse from eating or even from sleeping. Uh, it, any individual application of it wouldn't even really harm the mouse. Like, you could even do it a couple times a day for a few days and stop, and the mouse would go on about its little mouse life and live however he's going to live. But if you do it sufficiently, you actually see disease rates go up, insomnia go up, and even to the point where the mice can have heart attacks just from stress. So if you look around at a society that, that is, is dramatically sick, uh, and I mean ill, both mentally and physically, and you want one of the real contributing factors to it is people not living consistently with their own beliefs, thereby causing cognitive dissonance, 
which causes stress, which leads to a myriad of other problems. So let's kind of dig into some of these laws. And I think you'll agree that that really is the most important kind of keystone in really understanding why they're important to you. So first, keep your friends to people you want to be at least a little more like in some way. So I want to be clear here. Like, if I have family members... And I really can't identify something about them. Like, I can't say, like, well, you know, that person's more charitable than me, and I'd like to be a little more charitable. Um, or, you know, that person has a work ethic that's a little bit stronger than mine. Or that person has a way of seeing things that's a little more broad than mine. There's like, there's, even if I can't find anything with, like, a family member or someone that's like a colleague, it doesn't mean I won't talk to them at all. It doesn't mean I will banish them. It doesn't mean I'm going to be a dick to them. Okay. What it does mean is that when I have time that I can choose who's going to be spending it with me, and I'm going to invest my time, and I'm going to have in-depth conversations, I'm going to seek out people that I can look at and say, here's a couple ways that I want to be more like this person. And I'm going to really hope that I've done enough work in my life to be a good enough person that they can look back at me and feel the same way. Because you are going to be more like the people you associate with. This is not a maybe. This is not a possibly. This is not a sort of. If you associate with people consistently, if you have dialogues with them consistently, even if you in general disagree during your discussions, you are going to become more like that person. So that person doesn't even have to agree with you. If you really admire the way a person articulates that debate, even if you never change your mind, you will become better at articulating your debate. When I was a very, very young man, I worked in a warehouse packing boxes, and we were judged on how many dollars worth of merchandise that we packed. A good packer packed something like $10,000 worth of merchandise. That was kind of your quote. It was like $9,900 or something. And uh, it, you know, with this, it was all low-dollar items, so with as many boxes as you packed and all, it kind of evened out. This box might have a lot of expensive shit. This might have a lot of cheap, but it worked out. And, and you would find, even though you didn't think it was fair, after about a two weeks of doing it, that you packed about the same amount all the time. And I was always just under the quota that they set for me. By the way, almost everybody was. Almost everybody was. There was a guy in there, his name was Nate. I could still see his face, couldn't tell you his last name. One of the only times I ever spent time with him was, they were like, you know, you're really close. We're going to have you work with Nate for a day, and then we think your numbers will go up. Okay. So Nate comes and he says, all you got to do is tape the boxes closed, put the label on them, I'll do everything else. Get ready. Like, what the hell? What bullshit is this? He almost killed me. But I was more exhausted at the end of the day, just taping up the boxes, labeling them, and stacking them for the, the, the receivers to come get them that I wasn't doing the entire job myself. We ended up packing something like $28,000 worth of merchandise. Now, he couldn't do that by himself either. That was the two of us working together at the highest level we could. But that's all that happened. I watched him pack, and I did the other side. That was it. The next day, I did like $14,000, almost $15,000. My numbers went up. It wasn't a thing I was really, really proud of. And in fact, since I was making about 6 bucks an hour at the time, I was wondering what the hell the point of this was. But it cemented into my, my, my being, this law. 
that I would indeed be more like the people that I was around. Because if packing boxes with a guy for a day could make me more like him in the way he packed boxes, what could a hundred conversations over a beer do? So the danger of this is there's nothing about someone that you want to be more like than all you can do is take all the areas in your life that are important to you about how you conduct yourself and drag them down. It's your mom saying your friends are going to be a bad influence. This is one of those things. We know better, but because, well, at least this person will spend time with me, sometimes we make bad decisions with this. And again, this doesn't mean I won't help a person that doesn't pass this test. This doesn't mean I won't have anything to do with them. But when we talk about people that go on the short list, people that I have phone conversations with, people that I rely on, people that I will open my home to and say, come spend a week here, those people, people that I will invite to spend three days of my vacation with me and my wife with, you don't pass that test. You don't go on that list. Because my desire is to become a better man every day. And I can only do that if I am not only lifting up the people around me, but they are lifting me up in expectation. Okay? Law number two, your past is not a liability. I get really tired of people telling me that shit like, you know, um, you don't understand. You know, I, wasn't, I didn't, didn't have all the opportunities you did growing up. Let me tell you how many opportunities I had growing up. Pretty much none. Okay? I'm a son of a bootleg coal miner. My mother is a drug addict. Um, whether she's, you know, she's gotten her life anywhere back in order or not, I don't even know. I mean, that, 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 that dark tunnel and that dark cloud is so dark, I don't even care. I had to, to, to be able to build my life in any meaningful way, I had to separate myself from my family to a large degree. Uh, and in some cases, completely. I was living on my own when I was 16 years old. And I could keep going. And you know what? Those of you that know what I accomplished in my life and where I'm at today and how much impact I've had would say, what an amazing story. What an amazing story. Well, you see, that's the thing. It is so true that coming from a troubled past actually gives you an opportunity to become great. The people have even lied about it. I don't remember who the guy was. There was some guy that wrote a book that Oprah made famous about how screwed up his past was. And like he was basically like he was a low-level criminal and all kinds of stuff. And it turned out he was just a really good inspirational writer. And all of this bad shit in his past never happened. He was basically playing a victim card, but using it to sell success. And she put on her book club or something, and he got real famous, and then she pulled the plug on him when she found out. Um, ben Carson was accused of this, Dr. Ben Carson. In his autobiography that was released you know, conveniently, not long before he decided he wanted to run for president, that some of the things in it, there were things he did bad, were not true. Because in our hearts we know that generally when people come from a place of adversity, that they achieve more. That, you know... There's a reason a lot of the guys that become really good uh, boxers come from the inner city. It's not just because they learned how to fight. It's because they had to. And because they know what it is to have to fight. That doesn't mean a rich kid from Westchester can't become a good boxer, but you know, the kid from South Philly is a lot more likely to. Your past is no liability except for, and I know what people are going to say, and there's always exceptions, 
if you committed a felony and that is limiting your opportunities. Well, then that's a liability that you want a job and you can't get one. Okay, I understand. But then we'll save it for the walls discussion. What is your other options? Because the guy that can say I had a felony conviction, I couldn't find a job, and here's what I did to succeed, everybody admires. And there'll be a point at which a person that's had something even that negative in their background can do enough to lift the cloud and have others not worry about that and only admire the success. And the worse it is, the more you'll have to do. That's an asset. Because that's a drive. That's drive. That's desire. That's determination. The bigger the adversity... See, I know that there, if, if they're, you know, the ones that are still alive, the teachers I had in high school, if you found them and said, check this, this thing out, this Jack Spirico kid, do you remember him? They, uh, you know, a lot of kid, you know, teachers have hundreds of kids over the years and whatever. And they, I don't know, maybe. I'm telling you, most of my teachers, you said Jack Spirico, they'd be like, yeah, oh yeah, I remember that guy. And they, if you said, he, is currently shaping the minds of 200,000 Americans with what he teaches. The look in their face would be abject horror. How is this clown, this lazy kid, that's smart but doesn't give a shit, the smartass, and was always on the edge of putting himself in the local city jail but managed to stay out of it, how is it that he can be doing this and should he really be doing it? And I knew there were a lot of people who thought, that guy will never be anything. That guy's going to end up in jail someday. Yeah, he went off to the Army. He'll be back here, and he'll be living in a trailer down, down, down by the stripping halls. I knew there were people who thought that. It was part of my drive. No, it's not going to be me. I'm going to go do something. I'm going to make something happen. Your past is not a liability. No matter what's in it, Assuming that you have the freedom to try today. If you are in prison, your past is a liability because for a certain amount of time you do not have your freedom. But there is some freedom even in prison. There is something you can be doing even there. So that when you get out, you can become more. Almost every person, if you look through history and you find people that truly changed the world especially for the better. Almost all come from a place of adversity. Almost every single one of them comes from a place of adversity. And that's a commonality you just can't ignore. In fact, the full laws I describe it in my book is your past is not a liability. Those who have achieved the most have always seemed to come from a life involved struggle, poverty, and adversity. Usually all three. When I really look at people that really did some really great shit in the world, I often think, oh, thank God, I didn't grow up in a perfect little house in a perfect little suburb with a dad that worked 40 hours a week and came home and made a really good income and drove a new car and a mom that was there that cooked cookies and the life that everybody would want. And I think it's, it's probably the best life for most people. But I think if you truly want to be exceptional, it's almost necessary that maybe it not be that easy. Because when things are that easy, 
we have a tendency to kind of lay down on the job when the job we're talking about is building our better life for ourselves. Now, some of you may be thinking, you know, actually he's right, and and I had it too easy. Your past is also not an ability, a disability or a liability. There's things because of your past that are advantages that you have. You just need to figure out how to make them happen. This makes me think of a young kid that I met when I was on a, a project uh, with Mark Shepard in, in Arkansas. And I had a, a bunch of his young uh, intern types that were with me hanging out and drinking. And um, Mark is big into the you know regenerative agriculture, kind of permaculture space. And all three of these people that worked for him were pretty big on the whole social justice side of things. And you can understand why. They were young, you know, early 20s, that type of thing. Uh, Mark's not, by the way. Mark's pretty much, you know, nuts and bolts kind of guy. Uh, but the, there was two that had quite a bit of experience, and one was brand new to things. And, you know, this kid grew up in exactly the kind of, like, leave-it-to-beaver home that I talked about. And he was talking about the advantages that he has over other people. And somehow he ended up doing some self-defense training and some other crazy shit. But I'm like, look, you can't even handle yourself. Like, in, in like uh, ten minutes, I taught the, this girl that worked for Mark to basically hand the guy a, a, a marker like a knife and stab her with it. He's like, oh, I'm like, you can't hurt her. It's a freaking marker, dude. And next thing she's cutting his throat with the marker. He can't even handle a girl and touch her with a marker without having her hand his ass to him. He doesn't know how to handle himself socially. But what advantage do you think you got by being spoiled like this? Now you have to go out and learn how to live in the real world. And I actually, you know, it was nice to him. I gave him some advice on that and all. But that's what I'm saying, that, like, every background creates adversity. If we choose to face it... If we choose to stay in a cocoon, then our backgrounds cannot create adversity. We can just kind of go along to get along, whether it's as a, you know, a, 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 a guy that lives the poverty level his whole life but doesn't really care, sits on his porch and drinks his quart of beer, or we can you, you, we can live without any real acceptance of that uh, that struggle that we have for being too having it all be too easy. Because we don't strive to become anything exceptional. You're going to have adversity if you're going to have anything exceptional. So the fact there was adversity in your background cannot be a liability. It is fuel for you to accomplish things with. Next uh, law of life. Setting goals makes the inevitable educational. This is something I've always been big on when it comes to setting goals. And to find goals with a, a, a timeline that are accountable goals. So if your goal is, I want to become a millionaire. Okay, when? Oh, at some point. So you're 50, you're not a millionaire. I'll get there someday. It's my goal. right? So a, a smarter goal would be I want to become a millionaire. And therefore, my first step is to have at least $100,000 in savings and investments. And this is how long it's going to take to get to $100,000. So if I'm going to be on my path to being a millionaire ever, I need a timeline to get to $100,000. And then you say, self I have to do these things to get there, and son of a gun if you don't get there. But like funny little thing, right as I started conceiving of this book happened, that completed this law and made it a little bit more interesting, 
there was a, a, a gal and her husband that follow me on Facebook, Crystal and Derek, they listen to the show. They do a lot of projects uh, that come from the show and the YouTube videos I do and all. And something made her decide that she wanted to uh, learn how to identify stinging nettles. So she had set that goal for herself. It was one of her plant identification goals for whatever period of time this was. Uh, and, and, you know, by coincidence, stinging nettles happen to grow in her garden, like a weed, which it is. It's also a useful plant. She had not yet accomplished her goal. She hadn't looked it up or anything yet. And there's this plant, funny-looking plant, and she touched it. And, of course, it did what stinging nettles did. It itches and it stings, and she thought herself right away, maybe this is stinging nettles. So she went and looked it up and looked at the two, the picture and the plant and said, that's it. I, I now know what it looks like. This sucked. But now I know this is stinging nettles. Well, imagine she hadn't set that goal. It was inevitable. Once she had planted the garden in the place that she did at the time that she did, that that plant was going to grow there. So had she not set that goal, she might have touched that plant and said, oh, this plant sucks got a pair of gloves, yanked it out, and threw it away. I never learned anything from it other than, hey, that plant that looks like that way is bad. Instead, she now knows this is actually a valuable plant. This is a food plant. This is a fiber plant. Those two things. That stinging quality can be taken away. We can cook it, and there's other things we can do to neutralize it. And this plant could also be used to deter, deter people from bothering me. I could actually cultivate this plant in places where people like, like to steal stuff. And then they'll get all itchy and irritated, and maybe they'll go away. Like, there's a whole bunch that she learned because she set the goal. So when we set goals in our lives, we make the inevitable educational. There are some things just by setting goals that will happen that would not have happened without those goals. Because if the goal is $100,000, we will start saving money. So maybe if we didn't set the goal, we wouldn't have done that. Or maybe we're going to save more money. Or maybe we're going to stop a certain kind of spending. But those will lead us to things that we wouldn't have identified or things that we wouldn't have identified that would have happened anyway will come along. And because we have the goal in mind, we'll perceive things differently, which was just random information now becomes important information. Or it was just a random fact or a random thing can become an opportunity. Because once we have the goal set, we've programmed the mental computer with computer, I want this thing. And the subcommand is identify things that help me get this other thing. So now the mind switches on. And the mind, now that, that piece of code has gone in. And until you override it with something else, I don't want this anymore. Whether you're conscious of it or not, your mind is looking around and going, how do I get this thing? How do I make this thing happen? When, when the command is, computer, I want to be able to figure out how to start a business. Even when you don't consciously think about it for a few days, your mind is going, hey, how, how are we going to get that done? That algorithm is running in the back, and that self-learning computer you call a brain, it's running in the background, like a background process. And all of a sudden you see this problem in the world. And instead of going, that really sucks, you think, how can I solve that problem? That might lead to a product or a service that lets you fulfill that, that programming command of starting a business. That's how this works. That's how this really works. So 
the goal setting is not just because the goal itself is more likely to be achieved if we set it. The goal setting is because it switches on the full computer bank that is the mind to see the opportunities that would lead you there. People that like to sell bullshit call this the law of attraction. This is the real law of attraction. Crystal did not somehow metaphysically attract stinging nettles through her garden, which is what you know people with the the secret. Remember the book The Secret. If you've ever seen it, don't buy it. Uh, that was what it t- would tell you that she manifested. She manifested stinging nettles. They were bur- you know, They were like coming down on her from the universe. They were is an inevitable thing that different choices she made along the way in her life led her to a place where her hand and that plant were going to come together. There was there's there I want to say there's no way to avoid it, but there was no way to avoid it on the path that she took. If she had made some different decisions, may like I didn't want a garden, it may not have happened. But once certain paths were chosen in life, those things those two things were going to come to a confluence Bam, they were going to come together. It was the goal of knowing what this plant was. And the the bigger goal, probably, if I want to know what all plants are. See, once that decision was made. Now, this thing that hurts me, I need to know what it is. I don't just need to see it as an inconvenience to get rid of it. But something else happens, though. It's more in line with the law of attraction. You begin to take better actions toward the goal. And those, remember what I said Some of the things that would happen would not have happened if different decisions would have been made. Now the decisions are being made toward the goal. So more opportunities to achieve the goal are going to show up. You're going to recognize more, but you're going to get the chance to recognize more. That's the real law of attraction. And that's why I've always kind of defended it just a little bit, but then when people try to sell it, I'm always like, they're liars. Because either they know what I've just said, And it could be explained that way so it would make sense. Or they really just don't understand it at all, and they do think it's like some sort of uh, mental magnetism. Like, if I go to a place where they don't serve coffee, and I believe in my heart enough that coffee will appear, coffee will appear. Well, that may lead you to realize that, well, they don't serve coffee here, but they don't have any prohibition against it, and there's a Starbucks across the street and go get your own coffee. That would be one example of that. Or, hey, this place doesn't serve coffee. I could bring my own. Or, hey, this place doesn't doesn't generally serve coffee, but I could ask them. Right? And all of a sudden, you think you've manifested a cup of coffee. Right? If you, you pull into a parking lot, and there's no open parking, and you're thinking that I would really like a parking spot up at the front, Without even realizing it, out of your peripheral vision, you may actually notice uh, a couple getting in a vehicle. And without even realizing you're doing it, you may make a right turn instead of a left and head up a different lane. And just as you head up that lane, your computer even tells you, without you, like in the subconscious level, to slow down a little bit so you don't pass them. You'll slow down and you'll need, see the lights come on and wait, and you manifested a parking space. That person was leaving at that time based on their own life path anyway. You didn't manifest an effing parking spot. But your awareness of your desire to have it and a belief that it was possible made it more likely that you would catch the opportunity when it appeared.
That's the real law of attraction. That's what setting goals makes the inevitable educational is all about. Next, this is probably the deepest one and, and the most important one and the hardest one to really understand. You can't walk through the walls in your dreams because you put them there. So you guys know me. I'm one of these guys that, like, if I hear something that's interesting, I'm going to figure it out see if I can do it too. So a very long time ago, long before I was podcasting, uh, long before I was successful in sales and marketing, Uh, I was reading various books, and I read something somewhere along the way about lucid dreaming. Well, what's that? Well, that's where you figure out you're dreaming, and you can basically have fun in your dreams. You can fly, for instance. You can, you can talk to people and know that it's a dream, and you've created this character. Maybe it's a, a person that you know who passed away. And you can have that conversation knowing it's a dream and knowing you're talking to yourself and learn more from it. It's fun, it's cool, and it's useful. So I decided I wanted to learn how to do this. There's various exercises you can do to become better at lucid dreaming. And one of the chief ones is being able to look for things, almost like the last law applies here as well, that indicate that you're dreaming. For instance, if you're trying to, let's say, uh, find a car and you just can't find your car at all and it seems really ridiculous, That might be an indication that you're dreaming. Most people can find their car. If you're trying to type something into your phone and whatever you type comes up wrong, almost like you have aphasia, either you're having a stroke, your phone's broken, or you're dreaming. There's a lot of things that are little indicators. And you can even program your mind to purposefully cause some of them. And that's like a trigger. And then once you see that, You kind of can wake up in the dream, and it's probably a good idea to test it <laughs> so you're not walking around doing something you shouldn't be doing in real life, thinking you're in a dream with some kind of mental illness. Uh, it's very hard to actually do that, though. But one of the easiest things you can do once you master this is try to fly. And just a little bit, just kind of levitate off the ground. If you're levitating off the ground, you found some really good mushrooms or some LSD, or you are dreaming. All right? So... Once you do that, then you know you're dreaming. Now the trick becomes to stay asleep. You start to awaken parts of your mind, and the biggest limitation on this whole thing is how long can I stay under? It's kind of like coming out of anesthesia. Once you get to a certain point, you're going to come around. Well, in all this, one day I decided in my dreams, a very, very long time ago, I'm going to go through that wall. When I tried to go through the wall, I couldn't go through the wall. It didn't hurt. It wasn't like smacking into a real wall in your life. It just didn't work. Almost like a force field on Star Trek. One time I was flying, I was like, I'm going to fly through the ceiling, and I just kind of couldn't do it. Sometimes the wall or the ceiling felt like a really soft mattress, like you could push into it, but you couldn't get through it. This is stupid. I can fly like freaking Superman, but I can't get through this wall, and I know it's only in my head. This wall does not exist. And it took me a while to finally come to a realization. The reason I couldn't get through that wall is that I chose to see it as a wall. If you think about the Matrix, uh, when uh, uh, Neo meets Spoonboy, right? Right? Remember Spoonboy? He says there is no spoon. Don't try to bend the spoon. That is impossible. The trick is to see that there is no spoon. Only yourself. So the walls in your dream are walls because you've decided they're walls. So once I realized that in my dreams, I'm like, Oh, there's a wall. I want to get through the wall. I'll just choose to see a door in the wall. All of a sudden, there's a door in the wall. You open the door and go through it, and there's some other fabrication in your mind behind it. Don't always work perfect, but you could get through the wall now. I'll just envision a hole in the wall, and I'll walk through it. There's, I'll just see no roof on the wall, and I'll fly over it. I'll just dream I've dug a tunnel under it and go underneath it. You're going through the ground, which means you've just 
gone through a different kind of wall that we call Earth. But it's all fake in your head anyway. But the key is, eventually, you can, you can get past these walls. And this is the hardest way to do it, but eventually you can convince your mind that I see a wall that is indeed a wall I can go through. A porous wall, right? A, a wall that can just be penetrated. It's a wall of light, which is kind of what it is, actually, in a way. More electricity. And you can get through the wall, but it's hard. Well, over the years, I've thought about how this applies to life. And like I said, this is the deepest one and probably the most important one to overcoming things in your life. Everything in your life that you think prevents you from accomplishing something is nothing but a wall. And there's multiple methods that we can use to get through a wall. Now, on some paths, let's say you really want to become a doctor. You have to install a door. Installing a door is the most time-consuming way to get through a wall. Right? You have to follow the rules. The door has to be square. You have to build a frame for it. You have to hang it on its hinges. And this is the way society sees as doing things the right way. This is not cheating. So if you want to become a doctor, then you absolutely have to install a door. You have to go to college for four years. You have to go to medical school for four years. You have to do a year of internship. You have to do, I think it's three years minimum of residency. And then you may even have to do more depending on what you're specializing. If you're being a cardiothoracic surgeon, for instance, you might have to do you know, seven years of residency at different levels before you're going to be fully on your own considered a board-certified cardiothoracic surgeon. There's not a lot of shortcuts there. There's not a lot of tunneling and climbing over and blowing holes through. And there certainly isn't looking at the wall and seeing it disappear. Those are not options on that path. And they shouldn't be. If you're going to be you know, swapping out kidneys and livers, we want to make sure you really know what you're doing because somebody else's life is at stake. But you might decide that what I really want to do is heal people, and there might be a pathway to that that doesn't involve becoming a medical doctor, and you might be able to use some of the other methods. In my instance, what I always wanted to do my whole life was be a teacher. Being a teacher sucks with pay. It sucks with structure. It sucks, sucks with requirements. It sucks with oversight. If you, if you install a door, that means I would have had to go to college, get a degree. Then I would have gotten a job maybe for a high school. I would have probably had to get a higher level degree, even a PhD, to teach in a college, which would be the minimum level I would probably be happy with. But then I would be told what I can teach, how I have to teach it, the hours that I have to teach, when I have to show up. I don't want to do any of that. Here's what I wanted. I wanted a job where I could do whatever the hell I want, teach whatever the hell I want, however the hell I wanted to, and even be an asshole at times. And I want to make a bunch of money doing it. Tell me it's not what I do. Tell me it's not what I spent the last decade doing. I, in that instance, didn't blow a hole through the wall. I didn't climb over the wall. I didn't make a tunnel under the wall. I removed the wall. I cheated, as far as society would be concerned. It's ridiculous that you can take a $30 tape recorder, a $20 headset, and 20 bucks worth of hosting a month. Pay some dude 500 bucks to throw a banner on a website for you. And in two years, make six figures as a teacher. But this is what I... I'm, I'm not really broadcast radio, guys. This show would never make it on radio. Even if I bought the time and ran it on AM radio, it still wouldn't make it. It's not what people are looking for in that medium. This is teaching. That's what I'm doing today. I'm teaching. So, I mean, like, 
have you ever seen, like, I'd love to see the advertisement, like, prestigious university, seeks a man with no degree, who is a complete and total asshole, to teach what he wants, when he wants, however the hell he wants, on his own terms, whether his students like it or not, reserves the right to tell his students they're ass clowns, and can change his uh, mind at any point, at any time, with absolutely no oversight whatsoever, shows up when he wants, wears whatever clothing he wants, it doesn't matter to us, Please submit CV, too. I mean, really? So how do you get that job? Will you remove the walls that exist between you and there? And then in between, there's other options. When I wanted to move into sales at a higher level than I was at, and the kind of companies I wanted to work for all required a degree, I found a company just small enough to have to settle for me got really good at what I was doing in a year flat, landed some really big accounts. And then all of a sudden, companies that were a little bit bigger that would generally require a degree and a little bit more prestigious were interested in me. I went to work for one of those for another year, learned a whole new set of skills, how to manage a territory, how to run a P&L, how to manage a distribution channel. How to negotiate OEM contracts. I learned all that. No one taught me. I learned it because I had the opportunity to learn it. And a company that had to settle for me again. A little bit better version of me. Next thing you know, I'm a regional sales vice president for a $500 million a year company. Two years from decision to accomplishment. Two and a half years, really. I blew holes in the walls. And there are people in my family that are a little bit resentful of that. I think they're not so much anymore. But at the time, you could tell. They were like killing themselves. They had college degrees. And like, how do you just do this? And it was maybe it was worse. I was a little bit arrogant. I said, I'm going to do it before I started. And then I did it just like I said I would. Like, and and it, it bothers people when you do this because people believe the installador method in the wall is the only method that's a valid method, that everything else is cheating. It's not cheating. It's more expedient if it fits what you're trying to do and if it's possible with what you're trying to do. Here's the really important thing, and this is the thing that should scare you if you don't grasp this and take control of it and make it part of your life. If you don't, this is the lifestyle design where somebody else is designing your life for you. They do it with walls. By the time a person is 25 years of age, we can look with startling accuracy at them and see what demographers say about people like them. And we can say the probability that person will be married how many kids they will probably have, whether or not they're probably going to get divorced, how long they're going to live, assuming they don't get cancer or run over by a train, what their retirement will look like. We can predict from 25 to the grave with like 5% accuracy, you know, 5% miss, so 95% accuracy of what the average person's life will look like by the time they're 25 years old. We can actually do it younger for a lot of people, but 25 is, whoa, why? It's the walls. So let me ask you a question. This is where you should start to get scared if you're not going to take care, take control of this. What do you build with walls to perform an experiment? The answer is a maze. The answer is a maze. And if you build a giant maze and put a person in it, and you make one way in and one way out, they're either going to mill around, get lost, lay down in a corner and die, or they're going to come out exactly where you designed the maze for them to come out at. Right? Why do you think they call it the rat race, folks? I mean, seriously. By 25, most people have made enough decisions 
to control that trajectory of their life that they have chosen their maze. They're now in their maze. And they now, those walls, they now have been taught to believe that they're real. They've had 13 years of state-sponsored education at a minimum convincing them these walls are your walls and they're real. And you can't cheat. The wall's made out of freaking bushes. Push your way through it. Get a hedge clipper and cut a hole. Climb over it. Pour freaking Roundup on it and kill that shrubbery row so that it's not even there anymore and remove the wall. Now, removing the wall is mastery of life. Removing the wall is when you get to the point where, unless it's the extreme example, this person wants to be a certified surgeon. If it's anything that's not that extreme, you always see a way to simply cast the walls aside. That doesn't mean there might not be actions and work and dedication and devotion and suffering and tears. But there's a way other than the way everybody says you have to. And there's a way to do it where the gatekeepers go away because the gatekeepers are the ultimate walls. Here's the gate. Here's, the door has been installed for you. You have to satisfy me before I let you through. Like a troll at a bridge. That's what a gatekeeper is. Away with you. Like a Jedi mind trick. Except it's more powerful than a Jedi trick, right? Instead of, instead of casting the gatekeeper aside with the force, it's like wizardry. The hand waves and the wall vanishes. Doesn't mean the journey is still not challenging, but the wall's not there anymore. That's how powerful this is. And you either learn to do it to some degree. You either learn to dig holes and climb over and blow through and hopefully on some levels make walls disappear. Or you stay in your maze and the state, social engineers, get to decide what your life's going to look like. Which one do you want for yourself? Next up. It's a good one for today. I'm giving you a lot of advice. You should never take the advice of anyone on any specific thing they have not proven to be highly competent at. This one I get a lot of objections to. Especially when I just put that out like on social media and nothing to go with it. Oh, you can learn stuff from people that don't know much about anything, but they might know one thing you don't know. Oh, God. These make me think of the people that they make fun of on TV that go to like a sci-fi convention and then ask, uh, like, you know, let's say somebody that played a character, you know, in episode 37, you did said this, but in episode 39, you said this. Please explain the contradiction. Like, you're looking for a problem that doesn't exist, right? Um, look, if you happen to know about, I don't know, an app on, the, on a phone that I don't happen to know about, that has nothing to do with my business or my life in general, but I just might like it, you could be a total effing idiot, and I could still gain something by finding out that that thing exists from you. You know, you, you, you see people all the time that aren't exactly the sharpest knife in a drawer, but they're really good at one thing. Well, then they're highly confident at it, and this doesn't apply to them, right? But there's always something that you can learn from anybody. This is about taking advice. Taking advice that you're going to make important decisions in your life on. You don't take advice from somebody that hasn't proven to be good at it. You might take their input, justify it against what you know, and judge it to see if it has any value, but you don't take it as advice. Advice is, I'm thinking about doing this, and the person says, 
based on all the information you gave me, the current state of the market, I think that's a good decision. And you say now, like, that really moves me in the direction of taking this decision forward. If that's advice on investing, and the guy's driving, like, you know, a 74 Velari with a slant six in it that's rusted through the seats, you probably shouldn't take that advice. Clearly, this person's advice on money is not good. I had an uncle named Stefan. Uncle Stefan was married three times in the state of Pennsylvania, which has alimony. He was like an engineer-level type guy, worked for Boeing. And he retired a blue-collar millionaire, in spite of the fact that he had three women in his life all getting alimony checks from him. That's not exactly easy. He had a really great house, really cool stuff. You know, he was the cool uncle that had, like, a classic Corvette and a classic Chevelle and... He built a garage just for his cars to be in. It was like a cool hangout garage. Big mobile home, drove around the country in his retirement. Cool old, you know, great Uncle Stefan, man. My dad said, that man gives you advice about money, son. You take it. He knows what he's doing with money. He gives you advice about women. You probably shouldn't take it. He's like, now, if you want to know how to get a girl to go out of date with you, he's probably good for that. You want to know how to keep a woman happy, probably shouldn't listen to great Uncle Stefan. Been married and divorced three times. It's valid. That's what this law is saying. It isn't, oh, this person's so beneath me, I won't take their advice. It's you don't, because this is what's really happening in these situations. It's not just that you're taking advice from somebody that's not proven to be competent in it. You're making decisions, and you're using that advice to justify the decision that you wanted to make anyway. That's where you get into trouble. That's where you get in the richest man in Babylon. This, this, that's where the genesis of this is. Uh, this law came from, and 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 what the I'm going to get you the exact quote from that book that that this came from. The author is uh, George Clausen in this book, and he says, um, "Secure the advice of those experienced in the profitable handling of gold of gold." Let their wisdom protect thy treasure from unsafe investments. Um, my father, his exact words on this, don't listen to anyone about anything unless they're doing better at it than you are. See, I softened it. For instance, uh, Bones and Amy, good friends of ours, right? Doc Bones and Nurse Amy, they have a podcast. Their podcast is nowhere near as successful as TSP. They don't have anywhere near the audience that I do, right? They just don't. But they're good podcasters. They're competent podcasters. I would take their advice on podcasting. They would take mine. They're also good business people. So even, even if they weren't podcasters, if they gave me business advice pertaining to my podcast, I would take their advice. I might not follow it, but I would, I would look at it and say, this has value. You have somebody telling you how you should run your podcast, They've never run a business. They've never run a podcast. They've never even run a blog. They've never done anything successful. They've never signed the front side of a paycheck in their life. They've never created anything. And they want to tell you what you should be doing where you're already successful. You don't take that advice. And I'm going to let that one go at that point because if I have to explain it much further, it's probably beating a dead horse at this point. Uh, the last one. This is the one that I took from Einstein's comment about judging a fish on its ability to climb a tree and it would think itself then to be stupid is everyone's a genius at a few things. Find those things 
and pour everything you have into them. So I have met people that you think, my God, this person, just nothing. Like, if I had a box of rocks and this person, the box of rocks would win in a game of Jeopardy against them. That's how bad this person is. Then they pick up an acoustic guitar. And they don't just have an ability to play it. They can't just strum a few things and, you know, play a few chords and, and sing some songs around a fire that makes a girl think they're cute. They play a guitar in a way that moves your soul. Or you meet a guy and he doesn't seem like he has a clue what he's doing. You put a fishing rod in his hand and he could drop a lure into a coffee cup at 50 yards. Damn near, you know. He knows everything about that lake. He can tell you where every fish in that lake is, every movement of everything. Make a great fishing guy. Or hand a guy a toolbox and put them on small engines so you can tear them apart, transform them, make them more powerful, fix anything that goes wrong with them. Or a person seems totally incompetent until you put them in front of a blackboard, give them math. And they're actually a mathematical genius that doesn't seem smart because they're socially inept. And any of a hundred other things. There are some legitimately stupid people that are mentally incapable of functioning at a level that makes them even seem human. There are people that mentally challenged. Okay? Even a lot of people that we would think of as mentally challenged that have specific disorders generally are actually really geniuses in some way too, though. There's very few people. See, stupid is not the lack of knowing how to do something. Stupid is the lack of ability to learn. Now, our education system has done a good job of conditioning people where they have basically a programmed learning disability. But that actually, once you separate them from that system, is within a little bit of time and a little bit of work pretty easy to overcome. And once you do that for that person and free them up to figure out what they really love you'll find that there's some things, probably a handful of things, that they're not just good at, they're great at. And even if they're not a genius yet, if you give them the time to immerse themselves, they will become a genius at them. That includes you. There are things in your life that you intrinsically just know you're on the right path when you're doing them. You need to find them. And then you need to grab onto them and become exceptional at them. And never be afraid to change your mind along the way. Just because you're good at something doesn't mean you should keep doing it. I was really good at closing big deals for corporate companies. I made a lot of money doing it. But it made me just enough unhappy that I didn't want to do it anymore. I found something else to do. Never sell yourself short. Maybe I should change this law just a little bit because it's really not a few things a few is like three or four everybody's a genius at dozens of things and of those there will be a few that you're either truly exceptional at or truly passionate about and if you can find one where it's both that's what you build your life on because you can truly build a life on anything If you're among the best at it, 
You try to come up with something that anybody does, anybody puts any effort into, anybody tries to do, that a living can't be made with. Especially today, with the Internet. i, I got to stop saying today with the Internet, because the Internet's been here like 20 years now. Like, anybody that doesn't understand that, like, you haven't been paying attention for two decades. Because, I mean, when I actually figured out what the Internet was going to become in the, in the, in the, eight, you know, the, the late 90s, it's like, holy shit! Holy shit, I can do anything I want! I mean, really? It took me like 10 years from like 98 to 2008 to figure out what it was. But I knew right away, like, oh my God, this is going to change the world. Not the way everybody else was just throwing money at dot bombs did. Like, oh, the gatekeepers are going to die. The walls are going to come down. What used to be a niche, a narrowly defined market, a niche, today is a, a massive market because of the reach from the Internet. And what used to be considered so narrow, so tiny of a sub-niche, that you couldn't even pay attention to it, is a niche. And what used to not even be identifiable is now a small niche that a small number of people can make a living with. I mean, that's the world we live in today. You are a genius at some things. Find the ones you're most passionate about, that you want most to become exceptional at, and dig into them like a pit bull on a bone. And don't give them up. Unless you decide you want to do something else. My final thoughts here today are, this stuff... When you explain it to people, they're like, it's really deep. But then they're like, this is really simple. It's really common sense. It is simple. It is simple. Every single thing that I teach is simple. It's simple in that it's something that you can do. It's not easy. It's not necessarily easy. It will never be the easiest choice is a better way to look at it. It might be simple, and it might even be relatively easy. But it's easier to sleep an extra hour than get up an hour early. It's easier to eat food that makes you happy than to give that food up so that you can lose weight. But it's simple to fix either one of those problems. It's simple to write a budget that you're going to live by and have a certain amount of money that you save. It's easier to piss all your money away and enjoy things for now. It's all simple, though, which means it's all something you can do. The thing is, are you going to make the easy choice? Or are you going to make the right one for you? Because this all goes back to what I say about lifestyle design. If you're not designing your life, and you're not constantly adapting your design to deal with the reality on the ground and the new things that come into it, someone's designing it for you, and as you learn today, it's even worse than you thought when I've told you before. It means that you're choosing your maze. You're seeing the walls that the designer put up in that maze as real walls when they don't have to be. You need to start tearing them down, removing them, putting doors in them if you have to, tunneling under them, blowing through them, climbing over them. Whatever you do, that's all steps in designing your life to get it your way. Fail to do it, and like the rat, you'll plod through the maze and either drop over dead along the way or come out exactly where the maze was designed for you to come out at. I don't want that for me, and I don't want that for anybody that can avoid it. So that means I don't want it for you. Make the simple choice, even when it's not easy.
With that, we have wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, there's two ways to support us. Uh, the first way you can support us is really easy. Just become a member of the Members Support Brigade. All you got to do, get on over to the website, thesurvivalpodcast.com, and click on, get, uh, click on Members. And when you do, there will be uh, information on the Members Support Brigade. But basically it works like this. Uh, you join the Members Brigade. It's 50 bucks a year or 5 bucks a month, depending on how you want to pay. And then you get all these discounts. You use the discounts, and they pay for your membership, and then some. Most of the people that use the discounts tell me they get somewhere between $100 to $200 in discounts a year at a minimum. So 50 bucks to get 100 bucks that's a good financial decision, plus you support the content you like. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, uh, active duty, prior service, and first responders as well, all of you qualify for a discount. Email me with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and that's all I really need, and I'll give you the discount code. Everybody else, you pay full price, but it's still a great deal. And uh, those of you that are getting service discount, do it before, not after you join. It's really hard to change once you sign up. All right. With that, um, the other way you can support us is by doing your online shopping at a little short web domain website called tspaz, T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz, really easy to remember. Just go there. You can see all the stuff that I've reviewed on Amazon. And remember, if I reviewed it, I own it, I spent my money on it, and I'd spend my money on it again, or I would not recommend that you do so. I mean, that's one thing. My integrity is huge on that. Um, I have, in the past, bought some stuff that was okay, but... Like I'm like, I'm not reviewing this. I'll even keep it, but I wouldn't buy it again, and I'll probably look for a better version thereof. I'm not, I'm not putting it on the site. Uh, and so you know when you see something recommended there that it's the best that I've found for the money. I look for value-to-price ratio. Uh, today we're in that kind of world with the concept of buying in bulk. You see, uh, I, I'm a big believer that you do save money wherever you can as long as you're getting as good or better product. That it, because little bits do add up. Now, if you have to take way too much time to do it or you're giving up too much in quality, that doesn't make sense, and you're nickeling, nickeling and diming yourself, uh, and you're tripping over, you're tripping over uh, dollars on your way to dimes, basically. It's just not a way to go. But one place it's really easy to do, especially since we're preppers, is with you know spices and seasonings and things like that. So I have uh, Star West Botanicals Lemon Pepper for you guys today. You get a pound of it for about 16 bucks. A little shaker of like two ounces of lemon pepper is like four or five dollars at the grocery store. So it's a straight up money saving thing, and it is all organic. Now I don't eat 100% organic. I'd like to, but I don't eat 100% organic and local and stuff like that. I grow a lot of my own. I, I, I choose organic or pasture raised or whatever whenever I can but there are certain places where I find it to be indeed critical to make the organic choice that it's just it's just a smarter way to be and when something involves citrus rind right when you're talking about zest the outside of a, of a citrus plant that's a place I do it because citrus is incredibly highly sprayed And if you think about the outside of that citrus, it's probably been hit with pesticides if it's not organic. So it's a place that I make the decision. So 16 bucks for a pound, it goes a long way. And I have a recipe in today's show notes for a lemon-herbed chicken. And if you've thought of like lemon pepper chicken, I'm like, that. I am telling you, this is a little bit world-changing. Uh, the recipe that's on there, I worked for a long time on. If you follow it to the letter, 
you will make the juiciest, best, basically like a fr- uh, you know like a, fr- a skinless fried chicken that you've ever had. Recipes free. Uh, the lemon pepper you can use any lemon pepper you want. You want to use the cheap stuff from the store you can. Uh, but do consider buying all your seasonings and spices in bulk. You know, start if you haven't ever done it before. You you know you gotta kind of play catch up. But you maybe start with like two or three things you use a lot of. Buy that. Two or three more things the next month. Pretty soon you have you know you have your ball jars of it. And whenever you store your deep pantry, and whenever one's empty, get a new one out. When you're down to one small jar left, go ahead and order again and keep it rotating. It saves money and it certainly adds up over time. As far as the 14 Frontier Organic Lemon Pepper, I recommend it is the best product I have found. It is incredibly good tasting, lots of flavor. And again, all organic, which again, to me, when you're eating the outside of a citrus rind, uh, and that's why when I make mead and I use citrus zest, uh, anything I cook and I use citrus zest, I make limoncello myself, that's where the product has to be organic for me because I'm not eating straight up pesticides that you'll never be able to wash out of that, that zest. That brings us to our song of the day today. The song of the day today is by Quarter Flash, released in 1981, and it's called Harden My Heart. Um, this is, you know, kind of about a woman that finds the strength to leave her man and to do it without being weak. Um, pretty cool song. Uh, the, uh, the band actually was called Seafood Mama and it didn't really work out for them. They were, uh, kind of a regional hit in the Pacific Northwest and they changed some things, changed out some band members, changed the name to Quarter Flash And they re, uh, re-released this song, and it became a top five hit in 81. Um, this song is the 80s to me. Not, it's not the only one that is, but it is the 80s. It's got that, that saxophone solo piece. It's got that sound to it. It's like quintessential 80s. And I think the reason a lot of people my age would say that is, and this is from Song Facts, it was released the same year MTV went on the air, Uh, the video contains many random images that have nothing to do with the song, including jugglers, a little person, a makeup table in the desert, a well-dressed guy on a motorcycle, a sax solo in the rain. It was fairly common in the 80s to just throw a bunch of disjointed scenes into videos and attempt to create some sort of a memorable image. Um, another kind of big hit for these guys, Elton John, one of the greatest musicians ever, uh, rarely used opening acts, but... Uh, he actually used Quarter Flash as an opening act for a while after this song was released. So when I hear this song, it's a decent song and all, but what it makes me think of is the early 80s. It makes me think of when MTV played music. And it makes me think of when life was just a little bit simpler to understand. It's good enough reason to make it a song of the day right there, folks. With that, it's been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.